I'll ask you to turn with me, please, to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. I'll be reading verse 7 to verse 13, but we will be covering chapter 6 up to chapter 8, verse 21. So, Mark chapter 6. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Pevensey children learned Aslan is not safe, but he is good. In the same way, you and I need to learn that God is not safe, but he is good. That theft disrupted our comfortable lives. And in fact, our comfortable lives are being disrupted by the hostility, skepticism, and indifference that we encounter in society. That's nothing new. Mark's first readers needed to embrace the reality that God is not safe, but He is good. They were probably Christians in Rome whose lives were being threatened by persecution. And so Mark writes this book in part to remind us that discipleship is risky business. It is the risky, costly business of being on mission with Jesus. Following Jesus demands sacrifice because it means having our lives shaped by His sovereign call. And in the case of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, it meant leaving their livelihoods as fishermen in order to become fishers of men. And we see that taking place as Jesus sends the 12 apostles on a training mission. Let's read the text. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So at this point, we find that Jesus is undaunted by the unbelief that he faced in his hometown of Nazareth. Despite that rejection, we are told in chapter 6, verse 6b, that Jesus went about the villages teaching. And as we just read, he sent out the 12 apostles in pairs to different villages. And their prescribed attire was striking because it was meant to mimic the way the Israelites were dressed as they anticipated the Exodus, as they ate the Passover. Because just like the Israelites, the 12 apostles were serving God in a new venture. Something new was happening. They proclaimed repentance, 
But as they cast out demons and healed the sick, they were also proclaiming by their works the coming of the kingdom of God. In other words, they were preaching the same message that Jesus preached. And so to reject them was to reject God. And that's why they would shake the dust off their feet when people refused to acknowledge their message. These were Jewish settlements, but they were shaking the dust off their feet to imply that these were actually pagan villages worthy of judgment. And they were to go without any means of support because they were to depend completely on God's provision. Notice what Jesus says. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. And they would stay, they would enter a house and stay there until they departed. Because they were to depend completely on God's provision and to be content with what God provided. Now, of course, Jesus sent them out, giving them authority to over unclean spirits. But despite that authority Jesus had given them, at this point in time, you have to realize that the disciples were completely unprepared. In chapter 4, we find that they could not even understand the parables Jesus told unless he explained it to them. And later on, we will see that these disciples are still hard of heart, unable to understand what Jesus was saying. So why would he send them out? Well, he was sending them out so that they would learn how much they needed him. In the words of one scholar, he was seeking to call the disciples from autonomy to dependence upon God. And brothers and sisters, the same is true of us. God calls us to be a lighthouse to the lost and a base camp for believers so that we would learn to rely on God. He is calling us to join Him in mission in order to reverse our hardwired habits of doubting God and relying on ourselves. That's why we had to face a budget that demanded of us an 11% increase in our giving from last year. It was challenging. I, I tell you, my hair was on fire when, I, when the finance committee was saying, we need 11% more. I'm like, oh, oh, this is not the church I wanted to go to. <laughs> but, you know, God leads us into uncomfortable situations where we are absolutely not in control so that we may learn to rely on Him alone. That's what discipleship is. It is being trained to depend on Christ alone, on Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. And indeed, as Jesus sent these disciples out, He was faithful because we are told in chapter 6, verse 30, that they returned and were able to tell him all that they had done and taught. It was a successful training mission. And that's our comfort and confidence as we follow Jesus. Faithfulness to Jesus is never easy. 
what he calls us to do is often beyond our ability. But he calls us to do that so that we may learn that he is faithful. In everything he calls us to do, he equips us. But we also need to recognize that obedience, following him, will be costly. And that is why, if you look at Mark chapter 6, you will see that Mark creates another sandwich between the sending out of the 12 apostles in 7 to 13 and the return of the apostles in verse 30. In between is the account of the imprisonment and execution of John the Baptist. And Mark deliberately sandwiches that account as the meat of the account or the meat of the sandwich to make the point that following Jesus is costly. In fact, it might mean your life. Now, the disciples return. They tell Jesus all that they had done and taught. And so he invites them to have some alone time with him. Verse 30, chapter 6, verse 31. And because the people were all gathering around them, they decided to take the boat to get away. But the people would not let them get away. They pursue them. And they get ahead of Jesus and his disciples. They're waiting on the opposite side, on the opposite shore. And we are told in verse 34, chapter 6, 34, that when Jesus saw the crowd waiting for them on the shore, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now, the language that Mark uses deliberately shows Jesus to be the fulfillment of God's promise to be the good shepherd who would care for his flock. That's in Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 24. Earlier, Laura read, The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23. It's very familiar to us. But I hope you realize that in the Old Testament, shepherd isn't just the guy who's taking care of sheep. The shepherding metaphor is actually used for kings. So that Jesus is being described in Psalm 23 and in, Ezekiel, and, and in this passage as the Davidic king who would rule over his people and care for them. That's why he expresses his care for them by feeding the 5,000 men plus who knows how many women and children. And if you take this audience as a baseline, there's probably about as many or more women than, than men. And then you add the children. So realistically, this 5, 000, crowd of 5,000 men would have included maybe another seven or 8,000 women and children. And in feeding that mob, Jesus shows himself to be the prophet greater than Moses who fed the people in the wilderness. So that the feeding of the 5,000 men isn't simply, it, it reveals to us Jesus as shepherd 
king, the prophet greater than Moses, indeed, someone that fulfills Old Testament prophecy. And his compassion becomes a teaching moment for the disciples as they experience yet again God's ability to provide. And they see that only Jesus can satisfy. In, in chapter 6, verse 42, notice how Mark says, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. Thirteen thousand men, women, and children satisfied, full to the brim, as it were. So much so that there was a basket for each of the disciples to take home. Probably not going to happen at our Q and A today. <laughs> but as James Edward no, Edwards notes, the miracle brings the divine will to perfect expression. For God wills to fill His creatures with Himself, to meet their needs with a surplus, to expand their smallness by His greatness, and to transform mundane life into abundant life. The turning point in the story is traceable to the moment when Jesus looks on the crowd with compassion, desiring to fill it with the abundance of grace within Himself. That's Jesus. And Mark deliberately juxtaposes this life-giving banquet in the wilderness that satisfied the people with the deadly feast that Herod gave in order to emphasize that Jesus is the true king. And unlike Herod, he uses his power to care for his people. Now, at this point, you get surprised. Because if Jesus is king, then what are we going to do with him? Well, never mind what the crowd was going to do. Jesus immediately sent his disciples away and dismissed the crowd. Chapter 6, verse 45. You notice he says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. If you're wondering why, you look at John chapter 6. And Mark merely implies what Mark, John 6, 15 makes explicit. The people wanted to revolt and make him king by force. See, that region of Galilee was a hotbed for the zealots who were eager to overthrow Roman rule. And when they saw that Jesus is the prophet greater than Moses because he fed the people in the wilderness... the men, the 5,000 men, started sharpening their knives not to cut the meat or cut, uh, not to cut the fish or the bread, but to start cutting into Romans. And Jesus himself was faced with the temptation of becoming a king without going through the suffering of the cross. So after sending the crowd away, he goes up on the mountain to pray. And as you read the Gospel of Mark, you will find that this is one of three pivotal moments in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is praying. Chapter 1, chapter 6, and chapter 14. All three moments are critical moments in the life of Jesus when he is faced with a choice. 
to follow the crowd, to follow his own inclination, or to serve the Father's plan. And at each point, Jesus prays in order to reaffirm his submission to the Father's plan as the beloved son and suffering servant. And Jesus dismissed his disciples or sent his disciples on ahead of him because they were in danger of getting sucked into the revolutionary fervor. In fact, one of his disciples was a zealot. So you could have imagined Simon the zealot beginning to to look over the men and figuring out, who do I want to lead? He sent them away, and he sent them to encounter difficulty because we are told in verse 48 that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. Now, Jesus wasn't being mean to them, sending them into trouble. The reason for that we will see is that he wanted them to know him more fully, to recognize that he is more than just a political figure, a political Messiah. We are told, Mark 6, verse 48, and he saw they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. A couple of things you need to note here. When Mark says Jesus meant to pass by them, he deliberately uses that language of passing by them because he evokes God revealing his glory to Moses in Exodus 33. When God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock and passed by him. Same thing, God speaking to Elijah, the passage that Ruth read. God passed by Elijah. So that Mark's language implies that Jesus was revealing his divine glory to the disciples. Because he walks where only God could walk. Now we know that the disciples misinterpreted it and said, Oh my goodness, it's a ghost. But in saying to the disciples, It is I. In the Greek, it's ego eimi. That's the same language that God used when Moses asked God, what is your name? I am. So that Jesus is taking Yahweh's name. I am. To show his disciples he is more than a political Messiah. He is God himself in the flesh, come to save. Their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand the meaning of the bread being multiplied. So they could not recognize the glory of Jesus. And so Jesus brought them through the stormy sea so that their eyes might be opened, so that they might see his glory. Now, if the disciples' hearts were hardened, 
then it is no surprise that in chapter 7, the hearts of the Pharisees and the scribes were also blind to the glory of Jesus. We are told in chapter 6, verse 53 to 56, that Jesus had healed many people in Genezaret. And yet, in chapter 7, all that the scribes from Jerusalem and the local Pharisees cared about is that some, verse 2, chapter 7, verse 2, some of Jesus' disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Can you picture the scene? Jesus has healed multiple people with incurable diseases, cast out demons. And the scribes and Pharisees look at Jesus and his disciples. They don't wash their hands. And so, now remember, these scribes from Jerusalem had previously accused Jesus of being in league with Satan. Now, they seek to embarrass Jesus by criticizing his disciples' lack of piety. And therefore, if their teacher, if the disciples lack piety, then the teacher must be teaching them badly, right? Because this is, this is not just a matter of hygiene. This is a matter of ceremonial purity, of spirituality. It's as if Jesus didn't care for purity, and therefore that Jesus, whom they think is in league with Satan, well, why would he care about purity? But we find that Jesus does not back down. They challenged him publicly, and so he exposes their hypocrisy. Look at chapter 7, verse 6. And he said to them, well, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Now, when Jesus calls them hypocrites, it's not that they said one thing and did another. According to Hans Beyer, Hypocrisy is not only displayed by demanding of others what one does not do oneself, but is found within the human heart when pretending to surrender to God when in fact the heart is thoroughly self-seeking. That's why Jesus says, this people honors me with their lips. They pretend to surrender to God, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching us doctrines, the commandments of men. Their hearts are far from God because, well, they are thoroughly self-seeking. The Pharisees and the scribes didn't like Jesus because he was a threat to their power, to their authority. He was a threat to their practices. And it's easy to criticize the, Jew, the Pharisees. It's easy to criticize the scribes. But I have to say, I have been there. 
when the human heart pretends to surrender to God, when in fact the heart is thoroughly self-seeking. I remember before I became a pastor that I was so determined to run away from God's call to become a pastor, I actually burned myself out serving the church. I led the choir, I played the piano, I led singing, I preached, I taught Sunday school on top of a 50-hour job <laughs> per week. And also that God would leave me alone. But to all intents and purposes, people thought I was following God. Truth was, I was hiding from God in all of the things that I'd been doing. And I have to confess that up to now, the desire to seek my own pleasure and my own glory is never far away. And so in the things I do, I have to check my motives every time because it is so easy to be self-seeking. Discipleship is costly because it's not just about what you do outwardly. Discipleship is costly because Jesus demands our hearts and he will not settle for anything less. And the scary thing about the scribes and Pharisees is that they didn't really mean to replace God's commands with their tradition. They had really good intentions. They wanted to make sure that they were keeping the law. Their oral tradition that Jesus references is an earnest attempt to figure out how we could keep God's law and not break it. But what happened was they ended up losing the intent of God's word and elevating their interpretation and their ideas over God's word. And so Jesus cites a case in point in verse 9 to verse 13. And Ben Witherington explains, in Jesus' era, it was indeed possible to declare by means of a vow that one's parents was, were prescribed from benefiting from some piece of property or material asset because it had been set aside for other purposes. For example, dedicated to the temple treasury. But in fact, this procedure had come to be used in Jesus' day to simply place property out of the reach of parental use without the pious intent to set it aside for some religious purpose. Good children, aren't they? There is furthermore the problem that oaths were taken so seriously in Jesus' social setting that it was difficult, if not impossible, to repent of something said using an oath, even if it was said in haste or in a moment of anger. The duty to fulfill a vow had been allowed to take precedence over the duty to parents. So if you, by by, without thinking, said, I will dedicate $5,000 to the temple, and then your, your parents came to you and said, son, we need money to pay rent. The Pharisees and scribes would say, no, no, you can't touch the 5000 If you want to help your parents, find other money. You cannot touch the 5000 that you dedicated to the temple. That's the temples. You can't break your oath. Jesus, however, takes the opposite view. Strongly affirming the traditional obligation to honor parents, including providing for them with financial support and removing obstacles for doing so. And here's the danger. 
Do you realize we're just as prone to exalt our own ideas and interpretations over God's Word? See, the problem goes beyond critical thinking or interpretation. Turn with me to chapter 7, verse 20 to 23. This is what Jesus says. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Jesus says that the problem is the human heart that is determined to run away from God. The human heart, our heart, that is determined to seek our own way. See, multiplying rules can never transform people. We need more than legislation. We need regeneration. And that's why Jesus came. He came to give himself on the cross in order to secure our forgiveness and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he rose again in order to give us new hearts on which God's law is written. None of the laws could cleanse us of sin's defilement. Jesus alone came to offer the sacrifice that would cleanse us of sin's defilement and align us and align our desires to his standards. That's why he came, and that's why we should trust and submit to him. That's what the disciples needed to learn, that this Jesus is more than a political Messiah who would kick the Romans out. He is God himself come in the flesh. Now, having defeated the Pharisees and the Jerusalem scribes yet again, Jesus goes into Gentile region, into the region of Tyre and Sidon. And ironically, these unclean Gentiles are actually far more responsive to Jesus. In verse 26, we find a Syrophoenician woman begging Jesus to cast a demon out of her daughter. And Jesus, this is probably one of the most strange accounts because... Jesus really sounds rude. He puts her off with a parable that indicated that his mission to the Jews was of first priority. But instead of being offended at being called a dog, this Gentile woman understood the parable. In verse 28, she responds to say God's mercy extends beyond ethnic Israel. Look at verse um, 28, chapter 7, verse 28. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. You realize that this is the first person in the gospel of Mark to understand a parable of Jesus? She's actually better than the disciples. They never understood his, his parables. And so Jesus heals this woman's daughter. And then in verse 31, we see Jesus healing a deaf and mute man. 
And that action is meant to remind us of Isaiah 35, verse 5 and verse 6, where it speaks of the, the deaf having their ears opened and the mute having their tongues opened. You see, Mark is signaling to you and me that salvation has come to the Gentile world in Jesus, who is God's eschatological redeemer from Zion. This is God bringing salvation. And that's why the people say in verse 37, He has done all things well. We are tempted to say, oh yeah, absolutely, Jesus did everything well. He did it with excellence. Well, it's actually meant to echo Genesis chapter 1 verse 31, where it says, and God saw everything he had made and it was very good. Again, James Edwards, it is a further instance of Jesus fulfilling the role of God. The Son's work in redemption is like the Father's work in creation. It is done well and leaves nothing to be desired. But then you might wonder, why does Jesus, again in verse 36, tell them, don't tell anyone? And this is actually a theme that has been going on in the miracles that Jesus performed. The only person Jesus said, Tell them what the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you is the man who was released from the bondage of the demons in, in Gennesaret, the one who had the, 6, 000, the legion of demons in him. Everywhere else, Jesus tells them to keep his miracle a secret. And it's because it is only in light of Jesus' suffering on the cross that Jesus is fully revealed and known. Up to this point, the miracles that Jesus perform give you an inkling into who he is. But you still won't understand fully who he is and what he has come to do until he goes to the cross. And then this section ends with Jesus having compassion on a crowd of 4,000 Gentiles and feeding them just as he fed the Jewish crowd. Now, th there's a question in the box that said, why do you preach large texts? It's, it feels rushed, and I apologize that it feels rushed. But the reason why I preach large sections is precisely situations like this. If I preach on the feeding of the 5,000 alone, when I get to the feeding of the 4,000 it's um, refer back to last Sunday, and it's the same thing. But in tackling a large section, you're actually seeing what Mark is trying to communicate. The fact that Jesus isn't just the Savior of the Jews. He is also the Savior of the Gentiles. But you miss that if you're not looking at the passage from feeding to feeding, if you will. So that's why I preach large texts. But just to return to the point that Mark is making, he's saying that Jesus hasn't just come for the Jews. He has also come to satisfy the deepest needs of Gentiles. And that's great news for you and me, isn't it? Because I dare say not 
many of us are Jewish. I know I'm not. So that Mark is presenting to us Jesus who is the Savior of the world, worthy of our trust and our submission. But sadly, chapter 8, the Pharisees persist in their unbelief. Instead of submitting to Jesus, they argue with him. Verse 11, and demand from him a sign from heaven. That's equivalent to treating Jesus as if he were uh, just some kind of prophet. Jesus is more than a prophet. He is God himself. And so he refused because it wasn't going to convince them anyway. Their minds were made up. And he left with his disciples. But here's the sad part. We are told in chapter 14 to verse 21 that disciples themselves are still self-centered and focused on, eternal, on externals. When Jesus tells them, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of, the, of Herod, all they could think of us, you know what, it's your fault. You didn't bring any bread. They had no bread. When really, Jesus was telling them something even more significant. Again, in the words of Hans Bayer, Pharisees and Herod are pretending to be something they are not, presenting themselves as healthy and whole persons, assured that they are fine with God, whole in themselves and their relationships. You, my disciples, are exposed to, endangered by, yes, here's the worst part, harboring the same attitude. And here's where this passage strikes me. In many ways, we are a lot like the disciples of Jesus. We are blind to our own sinfulness. So that none of us can truly say with Paul, I am the chief of sinners. Because all too often, we are too busy focusing on our own goodness or perhaps more accurately, focusing on the faults of others because they make us look good. And we are so caught up with our own selfish desires and our own selfish plans that we lose sight of Jesus and His glory. And we make good things, things that He has provided, into God things because we make too much of them. It's the same temptation we face today. And you know, that's the wonder and glory of Jesus. Discipleship is turning from our desire for autonomy to submit ourselves to the king. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He does not give up on his disciples. The whole point of the rebuke was to make them realize that they were blind to their own sinfulness. In the first place, none of them deserved to be his disciples. He called them sovereignly, not because they deserved anything. He chose them. They were not choice. 
In fact, as you keep going, you, f- you realize how fallen and flawed those disciples are. But the great thing about Jesus is that he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He, would trans- he had come, first of all, to save them. And he would transform them as they joined him in mission. And brothers and sisters, that's also our hope as his disciples. Of ourselves, we are miserable failures. But that's the whole point of Jesus coming, isn't it? Because none of us will measure up to God's standard. And that's why he didn't just come to be an example. He came to be our Savior. He came to give himself for us. And as the Gentiles learned, he has done all things well. And that's our comfort because he guarantees that the work he has begun in you and in me will be completed. And that frees us to be honest about our real condition. We don't have to hide behind a facade. We don't have to pretend that we're okay. God knows we're not. We can be honest with one another. We can be honest with God. Because His promise is that He who has begun the good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And that's why we delight in Him, isn't it? Because He loves us fully knowing how bad we are. Fully knowing how fallen we are. Fully knowing how many times we are going to fail. But that is precisely why He died and rose again. Because we desperately need a Savior. So following him may be painful and costly, and it will be. But nothing compares to the joy of being in relationship with him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that the second person of the triune God chose to enter the world as a fully human being to experience the fullness of human life to bear temptation and live in full obedience to you so that he may be our sacrifice and substitute. You didn't have to do this. You could have just condemned us and continued to be righteous and holy and just and loving. But you chose to send your son and he gave his life for us so that our sins would be forgiven and so that his 
righteous life that fully satisfied your standard, that fully pleased you, would be credited to us. So that when you look at us, you see us as we are in Christ. Fully pleasing to you. And yet you also see us as we are. So that you are determined in your love to transform us. And your spirit is even now at work in our lives through the various circumstances and situations into which you lead us so that you may refine our character and in the end make us like Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, what a privilege it is to belong to you. What a privilege it is to trust in Jesus. And, if, and we pray, Father, that if there be anybody here who is a stranger to your grace, who has not put their faith in Christ, who has not submitted to his reign, we ask that you would be gracious to that person. Cause the person to see the glory and beauty of Jesus so that he or she would trust in Christ and Christ alone. We ask this not for our sake, but for the glory and honor of your matchless name. Amen.